You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Wednesday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. The landscape of my childhood really began with my parents' childhood. My parents met when they were, my mom was 15 or 16, they married when she was 17, and my dad was, I think, maybe a sophomore in college or maybe a junior in college. And my parents came from a predominant African-American family in Nashville, Tennessee. My grandfather was a biomedical uh, professor at Fisk University, and my parents grew up in the civil rights movement time, of course, and this this idea of who you're supposed to be, especially as an African-American and this predominant society, I guess is the best way that I can kind of explain it. Your reputation mattered, what you looked like mattered, everything on the outside mattered so much for being able to get along in society. That's Zoe Shaw, psychotherapist, life coach, motivational speaker, podcast host, and writer whose work is focused on empowering women. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. My mother, she was one of the first 
I believe the first African-American to go to this predominantly white Catholic school after Brown versus Board of Education. And so she was taught very much that who you are, what you do, what is seen is so very important. So I was born in Nashville, Tennessee. My dad was in medical school at the time that I was I was born and I'm a second child. My mom was in college. My father utilized the Air Force to pay for his medical school. So after he graduated from medical school, they were stationed in Washington, D.C. at Andrews Air Force Base. And so that is where I went when I was one year old and lived there until I was about eight or nine. And I had a very sheltered, um, really just wonderful early childhood. And when my father got out of the Air Force, my parents decided to move to rural Maryland, <laughs> a place called Smithsburg, Maryland, which is a really, really tiny spot next to a slightly bigger town, Hagerstown. My father got a job at the hospital there. So he was an ER physician. What I didn't notice when I was young was that my parents had this idea, I think after the civil rights movement and things had quote, changed so much in our society that they wanted to raise us without this concept of race. They never spoke about color of skin or race. And even more important, my mother went out of her way to not speak about it. What do you think that was about for your mother? Was it the whole idea of it just, it shouldn't matter, it doesn't matter? I think it was more of we're past that. We have gotten behind that. And I want my children to not have race be a part of their idea about how the way the world works, which sounds good on a level, right? It sounds good that they had this idea that, that we are past that and that doesn't matter and shouldn't be a factor in our lives anymore. And like I said, had we continued to grow up in Washington, D.C., I think that it might have been fine because it never occurred to me. I was around other people with different colors and diversity and I didn't feel different. I think that a lot of our previous generation was steeped in is also that white is better. And so we want better opportunities for our kids. So we want to send our children to the better schools, to the white schools. I don't think it's so much now, especially in, in cities anymore, because just because our, you know, we, we are a melting pot now, but things were different back then. And my parents brought that with them. It was really about, I think, wanting the best for us, which would have been good had they not then decided to move to this place, a very rural farming community. It was all white. There were also a number of Mennonites. My parents sent me to a Christian school and all of a sudden I'm this little black girl showing up from Washington, DC and this school of all white people many of whom have never really interacted with, with a black person. And so that was a really big, you know, it was, it was life changing. And I learned a lot of things about how other people perceived me. And I learned a lot of things about blackness and I learned a lot um, that affected my self-esteem. You know, as a child, that dawning realization, or maybe it wasn't dawning, maybe it was sudden. Like, What did that feel like? Yeah, I think it was dawning because I didn't go in expecting that. And, you know, me going into a sea of white people wasn't really an issue necessarily until the things started being said and the questions started being asked. The best way I can describe it is shame. I realized or I began to feel a sense of, oh, these people think that I am not as good as they are. These people think that I am less than. Oh, this is how they see me. 
So I think it I think the best way to say it is shame, which in a healthy family of color or family of difference, parents are there and able to kind of reinforce some sense of good and pride in who you are. And that is something that my parents did not do because they did not want to talk about color or race. And so we, meaning my brother and my sister, knew very clearly that these were things we couldn't talk about with our parents. And there was nothing in our environment that allowed us to kind of work it out. We had to work it out within ourselves. And it wasn't even anything we talked about with each other either. Kids who grow up in families in which certain subjects are simply off limits quickly learn that they have to fend for themselves. To make matters more complicated, after a fairly garden-variety, church-going, Episcopalian upbringing, when the family moves to Maryland, Zoe's mom converts to an evangelical church, adding fuel to the fire. We started going to church where a pastor, you know, with a red face would shake his head and speak in tongues and People would, uh, you know, raise their hand. And so I'm learning about who I am, you know, and what this means about the color of my skin. And then I'm in this environment where I'm learning about God in a very different way than I learned about him back when we were in Washington, D.C. And I later also learned that the pastor didn't believe in the mixing of races. And so then the message I got was, God loves you, but not as much as he loves the white people. And so all of that, you know, that's a landscape <laughs> that I grew up in. And it, it explains a lot about just my self-esteem and, you know, my family history going into my adolescence as things began to unfold. Because you internalize that shame. The, sh- the, shame, the shame is not just they think I'm not as good as they are, but if they all think I'm not as good as they are, maybe I'm not as good as they are. And maybe I'm not. Yes, I think that was always a question. There was always this seed of this little fire, this seed of indignation that knew better, but it was overshadowed for the most part. And most of my, you know, growing up years from nine until, you know, 20. And so, yes, that question is always there. Am I not? Am I not as good? Well, yeah, I mean, I think when you're a child, you don't have any defenses against that. And as you said, if your parents aren't a place that you can go to unpack some of this stuff, mm-hmm. then you're left, you know, we are left to contend with it on our own. And we don't have the tools for it. We don't. And, you know, my parents, because I know, you know, like most parents do, is they do what they think is right. They do what they think is the best. They felt, I think, that they were going into this kind of environment and society to prove them wrong that they were going to somehow teach our pastor that black people are just as good but my parents had tools that we didn't have and they didn't even give us any and so i think what they did in some ways could be respected it's just the way they went about it that wasn't productive zoe attends a private school that's all white then she goes to a public junior high school where some black kids are bussed in from other neighborhoods and come from backgrounds and environments that are very different from Zoe's. She doesn't quite know what to make of them, and they definitely don't know what to make of her. So they're mean to her and call her names. They called me Oreo, 
black on the outside, white on the inside. And I was in this place of desperately wanting them to um, accept me and then also not understanding anything about who they were at the same time. And so I just kind of pushed myself away from them. And I, I felt like they were the, the mama bird who sniffs the ba- you know, the babies and figures out there's something wrong with them and pushes them out of the nest. So it was kind of a, both of them pushing me away and me pushing them away. And then me grappling again with who am I, right? I don't belong either place because I don't really understand them and they don't really understand me, but then I'm not white. And just really trying to struggle and find my place. And how do you metabolize that during that time? Does it make you uh, retreat? Does it make you work harder and want to excel? It made me push myself away from them and attempt somehow to not identify with them. And I think the way that I dealt with it was to push them away and to attempt to assimilate and be accepted as much as I can. I think one of the benefits was that I was also a very excellent athlete. I excelled tremendously and I poured a lot of myself into my athletics and I put a lot of myself into my academics and found acceptance that way. I think that that helped because, it, you know, obviously I succeeded um, and got a lot of accolades from that. And that attention maybe helped, but I think it also the way that it didn't help is that it didn't allow me to value and honor myself as a person who I was. It was for what I could do and what I could provide. When Zoe's 14, she meets a boy, an older boy named Vinny, at her brother's wrestling match. Zoe had been interested in boys before, but many were white. And they said things like, if you weren't black, I'd date you. For Zoe, this creates uncertainty and secretiveness around who she's attracted to and who's attracted to her. Things were changing a little bit when I was in high school, such that a white girl would date a black guy, and that was a little more accepted. But white guys were not interested in dating black girls. I didn't ever see that happen. And so I understood that my skin color made me off limits, unattractive. And maybe not unattractive, but it had to be secret. If I was gonna be in a relationship with someone, it had to be secret. So fast forward to meeting Vinny, and this is a black guy. He's in college, he's attractive, and he took an interest in me. We just started talking. And he asked me my phone number and I tried to be coy and I told him my last name and that he could find me in the phone book, never thinking that he actually would. Um, And we said our goodbyes and a few days later he called me. We began a... um, We began a relationship. It's interesting because I paused because I remember, you know, when he called me, one of the first things he asked me was, how was your day? And that, in a very odd way, threw me for a loop because no man had asked me ever how my day was. Just think about that for a sec. Such a simple question, right? How was your day? And yet for Zoe, this is something new, something she's not used to being asked not even when she was growing up, by her own father. My father was a brilliant, brilliant man. But he had a lot of pain, and he came from a very difficult um, family situation, a narcissistic mother. And my father adored my mother. And he really didn't have any space in his life to love anyone else. 
And I say love in terms of an action verb. My father loved me and I know he loved me, but we didn't really have a relationship and he didn't really have much of a relationship with any of us, my brother and my sister. He was a workaholic. And so I also grew up with what I call daddy lust, which I didn't really discover until I was 12 and I visited a friend and we spent the night and got up in the morning and her dad was like making us pancakes and he knew my name and he was asking us questions like he was interested in us. And I was fascinated. I had never seen that where a father was that interested in their child. You know, my father would often ask me how old I was. And he didn't know the names of my friends, you know? And he definitely didn't ask you how your day had been. No, no, he didn't. So, you know, I had this combo of self-esteem issues, identity issues, daddy lust, and it was just the perfect storm for meeting Vinny. And Vinny was black, but he didn't know that I wasn't, you know, like the other people. And eventually, as he got to know me, he just accepted me and... He would joke about the things he'd say, you know, you grew up in a bubble or he somehow accepted the fact that I wasn't, I didn't know my culture like I should. And I didn't, I I wasn't like everybody else. We'll be right back. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. 
Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com, C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Zoe and Vinny have both grown up in religious homes where, shall we say, sex before marriage is frowned upon a great deal of emphasis is placed on purity, especially purity for women. I knew very clearly that my mother was a virgin when she married my father. My parents were sure to let me know. It's funny because I don't know if my dad was. Hmm. (laughs) Nobody ever talked about that as if that didn't seem to matter as much. But my mother was a virgin when she married my father. And of course, I was expected to do the same. But that didn't happen. Vinny and I, you know, developed a sexual relationship. And within a year of dating, I became pregnant. And you were how old? Well, I was 15 when I became pregnant. You know, when I met Vinny, I actually lied to him about my age. Vinny was, must have been 18. I told him I was 15, even though I wasn't really yet. I was probably, I don't know, a few months from that. And we started dating when I was 14. So you can't fathom telling your parents. I mean, that's just that's just not something that you're going to do initially, right? I was actually very much praised for being the easy, good girl. And I always was. I got good grades. I didn't give my parents any trouble. I obeyed them. And so this, for me, <laughs> to now become pregnant, to have disobeyed them in in probably the worst way, in my opinion, at that time, um, was really devastating for me, on top of just the shame of what I had done. So I could not figure out how to form those words to tell my parents. Back then, there were not, you know, pregnancy tests you could just pick up at the drugstore. And so I I skipped school and I went to a, a pregnancy clinic crisis pregnancy clinic where they confirmed that I was pregnant. I told Benny and we planned to get an abortion. Now, I was also the child (laughs) who had walked an anti-abortion 
marches and um, remember we're an evangelical Christian. We don't believe in abortion. My mom and dad donated to Jerry Falwell. They were like a premier silver or gold, whatever donators to Jerry Falwell's pregnancy home and his mission to save babies. So I also came out of that, that culture. And so here I was at 15 now deciding I'm going to get an abortion because I can't do this. I can't tell my parents. I can't ruin my, my life. You know, I've done the sinful thing and I have to hide it. And so we planned to do that. And then he saved up his money and um, I, he picked me up from school on the day that we had scheduled the appointment and he drove me to the clinic. Then he stayed in the, in the waiting room and I went inside and when you go in, there was, you know, a group of other girls and we had to do this little group where they quote counsel you before you get the abortion. And in the beginning, the nurse passed out these little pills to everyone and said to take the, this medication. I guess it was going to relax you or something prior to the procedure. And the first thing I did was I looked at her and I said, well, this pill hurt the baby. And I remember she looked at me <laughs> with this expression of, do you know what you're just what you're getting ready to do? And you're asking me if this pill is going to hurt the baby. And it was also the first inkling for me that I was a mother who was already kind of thinking about this fetus as my child, already concerned. So here I am carrying these two, you know, <laughs> dichotomies, walking myself into the abortion room and I got on the table and the doctor came in and um, they began to set up and he did his ultrasound and and he did make a mention that I was really far along but that he could still do it because the baby was small and before I could even before I could process my thoughts my words just tumbled out and I sat up and I just said I, I can't do this I've changed my mind and the doctor was very irritable and he looked at me and he, you know, just said, you know, you've wasted my time and you're too far along. And if you come back here, I'm not treating you. And good luck. <laughs> Although I felt like he was wishing me something other than luck. And I literally jumped off the table, grabbed my socks and shoes and ran out of there into the lobby. And Vinny's looking at me wide eyed, like, is it over already? <laughs> and I told him, I I'm, I'm not doing it. I changed my mind. And he, you know, he was really just wonderful. And he was like, okay. Uh, he put his arm around me and we walked out of the place trying to figure out what to do from there. And, you know, as I tell that story, I'm always cognizant of the woman who has gotten the abortion because in that moment, I know because of the history of me and my parents and my family and, and, and my religion and all of those things led me to be in a place where I couldn't do it. But I just want to say, because so many of us have our own shame and secrets around um, things with sex and abortions and, and things like that, that there's just no judgment because we all, we all make our choices largely because of our influences that we're not even fully aware of. And so I just have no judgment for any woman who, who would and has and will make a choice like that. When Zoe and Vinny leave the clinic, his arm protectively around her, Zoe has a fantasy. She and Vinny will run away and find a castle where they'll live happily ever after. But as with most fantasies, 
reality comes crashing through. And the reality is that Zoe has volleyball practice and school. The reality is that she has parents at home who have no idea what's going on. The reality is that Zoe is still pregnant. I don't think that I had any idea what I was going to do. I think I just went straight into a sense of denial. And so I literally said nothing and I continued on and I finished my volleyball season. I remember, you know, reaching to get a ball and landing flat on my stomach and feeling the baby press into me so strongly and remembering, oh, okay, there's someone there. It was in December when I started track practice. And by then I was able to wear sweatshirts. It was getting cold. I'm in Maryland. And I was almost discovered once at track practice because my coach was going to put this device around my stomach to do these lifting things. And I remember slowly taking off my sweatshirt and looking at him to see if he, you know, noticed. Over time, my mom figured it out. She asked me one day, Zoe, are you pregnant? She literally just said those words. And I'm sure there were plenty of signs. Um, and even still, I couldn't tell her yes. So I allowed my poor mom to drag me to another pregnancy center where another kind lady told us that I was pregnant. How far along were you when your mother asked you that question? I must have been four or five months. It was around December. And I was due in May. So I'm there at the clinic. I had this idea that somehow my mom being there would make this all go away. That maybe I wasn't really pregnant and she would tell us that. But of course that didn't happen. I sat there and she told me what I already knew. And my mom was quiet. I thought about what happened in the abortion clinic because in the abortion clinic, because I was underage, the woman asked, the woman said, you can't get an abortion at 14 without your parents consent. And I remember thinking, oh, okay, well, great. Well, I'm going home. That's solved. And then she said, well, wait, if you sign this paper that says that, you know, you fear that if you disclose your, you know, pregnancy to your parents, that you will be hurt in some way or abused or something, then you can sign that. And it's fine that the law allows that. And I remember feeling so horrible and guilty for signing that paperwork, but I kind of rationalized it in my mind. I was like, well, if I tell my parents, you know, they'll drop dead and we won't have any parents to take care of us and somehow that will be dangerous. So, okay, I'm going to sign it. But the contrast of my mom's actual response in the pregnancy clinic was quiet, sad, and disappointed. Um, which is, is, is typical for my mom. And so, you know, I just sat there with shame and sadness and I felt very much a burden in that moment. On the way home from the clinic, Zoe and her mom make a stop. They go to Dairy Queen, which used to be a wonderful treat when Zoe was a child. But now all that childlike wonder is gone. Over ice cream, Zoe apologizes to her mom and tells her she wishes she could go away just so her parents won't have to deal with her predicament. Zoe's mom tells her that she and her father will talk about it. Her mom doesn't say much else. She remains quiet, disappointed. In the coming weeks, her parents tell Zoe that they will in fact be sending her away. Having had premarital sex and becoming pregnant, they see Zoe as a bad influence on her younger sister. 
So plans are made. Off she will go to a pregnancy home. And so I had to go. And, you know, in my mind at that time, I understood because I understood that I was tainted. I understood that, you know, I had done the sinful thing and that I deserved this. Was Vinny still in your life at that point? He was, yes. Vinny was still in my life. Um, And I remember feeling disappointed because remember my fantasy about us running away to a castle together? (laughs) And I wanted him to somehow swoop in and and say, you know, no, this is my child and I want to marry you and I'm not going to let this happen. And none of that happened. He was very much in agreement. I later found out, oh, maybe seven, ten years later, that my father had gone to Vinny in private and said, if you contest any of this, I will accuse you of statutory rape. And, you know, basically I will destroy you if you contest any of this. We are doing this because he was he was over, he was 19 at that time and I was 15. He said, we are doing this in Zoe's best interest. And so he agreed. And of course I didn't know that at that time and I just felt like he didn't care. But yes, we were still together and I started preparing to leave. And my parents told me that they were going to tell everyone that I was going to boarding school. I remember hearing stories from my mom about girls who got in trouble and what happened to them. And from my mom's experience, if a girl got pregnant as a teenager, in her society at least, she disappeared. You didn't see her anymore. And so I think that on some level, my mom was just continuing what she understood to be the way that you deal with these things. And so my parents um, packed me up and they took me for five hours away to Lynchburg, Virginia, to Jerry Falwell's Liberty Godparent home for pregnant women. And um, that's where I spent the, the duration of my pregnancy. So my coach, um, my teachers, the school, our church, family, everyone was told that I went to boarding school. Now, I was told that my siblings were also told that I went to boarding school. I later found out, maybe three years ago, I found out that my parents had actually told my siblings that I had a psychiatric breakdown and I had to go to a psychiatric hospital. In some ways, this is understandable because number one, My parents probably wouldn't necessarily have sent me to a boarding school for no reason, but probably the most important is that they couldn't visit me. And so my parents had to come up with a reason why they couldn't visit me, and their reason was because I was in a psychiatric hospital. So your siblings then, for all of those years following, had their own secret that they kept. Correct, yes. I mean, secrets create secrets create secrets. It's really something. They do. They do. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula, berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Zoe is terrified when she arrives at the pregnancy home. But she also feels deserving of this as her punishment. She understands why she's been banished. Most of the other girls there are from low socioeconomic backgrounds. It's very institutional. And yet again, Zoe feels out of place. Despite this, there's a camaraderie among the girls. Though their circumstances may vary, they're all kind to one another. But still... There's more going on at the pregnancy home than meets the eye. I felt like we were all taking time bombs in a way because there was this other layer of secrecy within the Liberty Godparent home because it was also directly attached. I mean, all of it housed together with an adoption agency. So the goal, of course, was for you to come in, have your baby, place your baby for adoption through their adoption agency and leave. And we, all, we weren't allowed to communicate with the girls who had left. Um, and so, you know, you would make friends with somebody 
And when they got close to due date, you know, you'd wake up in the morning to check and see, is your friend gone? Did they disappear? Are they still here? And there wasn't communication afterwards. And they didn't want us to because, you know, to some extent, they didn't really want us to be able to hear about what's it like on the other side once you've given your child away. Why was it called the Liberty Godparent Home? What was the godparent part of it? The godparent home, the idea was that they are saving babies and essentially kind of becoming their godparents and taking care of babies. You know, I have a number of mixed feelings about all of that, part, partly because I was a part of that. The Liberty Godparent Home didn't save any babies, although I understand the drive with people who are anti-abortion to want to save babies. I understand that. But Liberty Guard Godparent Home didn't even accept you in the home until you were past the period where you could even have an abortion. And then there's, of course, the other whole idea of, that, of the fact that, you know, a baby raised by a single mom isn't, you know, that's not okay, that we should take these babies and put them in homes, you know, with two parents. But, you know, it was the 19, well, early 90s at that point. It's so interesting, Zoe, because you, you just said it was the early 1990s. You could have said it was the early 1950s. You're right, because it was actually 1991. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the 1950s. Mm-hmm. It was it was that time period. Mm-hmm. But, and I very much felt like I was caught up in that. Now looking back, you know, kind of after we moved to, to Hagerstown. So that was the culture, you know, and the understanding is that I'm going to place my baby for adoption. And you had some agency, so to speak, in the choice of adoptive parents? So, you know, when you say agency, it's an interesting word because never once did anybody say, you have to do this and you have no, no choice. It was always, we're going to help you make your decision. And there was no help with how could you bring a baby home? How could you not place your baby for adoption? But there was this idea that you were making this choice and they were going to help you make this choice. Now, my mom did send me a a letter that was very clear when I was in the home that if I were to try or want to bring this baby home, that our relationship as mother and daughter would forever be changed. Um, And ultimately, I think a lot of the guilt and shame that I took with me after this whole process was a feeling like I had somehow chosen my mother over my child and for me that didn't feel okay but I felt that I had to choose her over my child because I didn't know how to do anything differently I didn't know how I could leave and run off to the castle and take care of you know my baby so you know we had therapy and we had um, a process of making your decision and then you know when I said what what I was supposed to say, which is I'll place my baby. Then they presented me with a book with pictures of really kind looking couples. And I remember thinking at that time, my parents would never pick a babysitter for me by looking at a bunch of pictures of girls. And yet I'm picking parents for my child by looking at a bunch of pictures and maybe a a paragraph about who they are. And so I picked the nice looking couple and uh, waited for my baby to be born. When Zoe goes into labor, she's in a therapy session at the home. 
Her therapist, Jamie, is the one who takes her to the hospital. No one else is available. Jamie, a young social worker in her 20s, shuffles Zoe into her cool little sports car, but first she puts a plastic bag on the car seat, just in case Zoe's water breaks. And so I, I'm getting in this, you know, car, sitting on this plastic bag. I'm, you know, 16 and have no idea what I'm in store for. But Jamie, bless her heart, sat with me through probably at least half of my labor, uh, at least four hours until my mom could drive to get there. Now, prior to my mom getting there, a nurse had given me some um, pain medication. It was just a pill. Nobody offered me an epidural, nobody offered me anything else, but they did offer me some pill and I took the pill and it did seem to help a little bit. By the time my mom got there, I was really in the throes of labor and Jamie took off. And I had asked for something for the pain. And my mom just shook her head, just just shook her head now. What did you make of that shake of your mother's head? I just internalized it as I deserved this. I needed to feel it. I needed to experience all of the pain of what I had, you know, this was my punishment, that I I shouldn't be relieved of this experience. And I think probably to some extent that is true. My mother, though, in her defense, she had all three of her children without pain medication. But in that moment, I perceived it as, no, you don't get to have that. And I just remember the deep shame I felt in that moment when my mom shook her head no. So that I went through the rest of my labor, you know, without any pain medication. And so my daughter was born and, you know, it was just such a sober, just a sober, such a sober experience. You know, there was no excitement. There was no congratulations. You know, there weren't smiles. I think no matter how old you are when you have a child, you're not prepared <laughs> for the aftermath of, you know, the, the war zone that your body is. But I think there was a level of trauma that was probably increased after that experience because I was so young. And um, I just remember seeing my body, you know, the day after and just thinking, what, what have I done? And the, the, the thing with the home is once you have the baby, they want you to leave as soon as possible. They don't want you to stay for obvious reasons. They don't want you to connect with the baby. They don't want you to change your mind. And my mom was totally on board for all of that. The social worker from the agency came and said, it's better if you just leave as soon as possible. I remember there was this doctor, this young doctor. Um, I was in the room and my daughter, I named her Kaya. Her name is different now, but I don't know if I was holding her or if she was in the bassinet, but he just kind of flew into the room and he was like a breath of fresh air and he was all smiles and he congratulated me and he said, what a beautiful baby I have, what a wonderful mom I'm going to be. He did all of her vitals and just wished me the best and left the room. And I remember thinking he didn't see in the file, he didn't see that I'm placing her. And I remember just thinking, I hope that he never reads that. I hope that that stays a reality somewhere in his mind forever. Because he was the only brightness. You know, everybody else was just somber, all the nurses and everybody that came in, because they knew that I was placing her. So we packed up really quickly and I did that walk. I don't know, I don't know how better to explain it. It was just like, a walk toward death almost. You know, I, I, I was conscious of every single step 
as I left the hospital that I was putting distance between myself and my baby. Zoe and her mother head downstairs to leave the hospital. Zoe waits by the exit while her mother goes to get the car. And then suddenly, her mom zips around the corner in a brand new vehicle, a shiny red Pontiac Fiero, a push present for her daughter. And I remember thinking, of course, it's a two-seater. I couldn't bring a baby home if I wanted to. And she presented me with my present, which I suppose was supposed to be for my 16th birthday. And I remember thanking her and hugging her and crying, although I wasn't crying because I got a new sports car. I was crying, of course, because of all of what was transpiring in that moment. And we got in my new sports car and we drove away. Before we got home, we stopped at a hotel and we had to stay there for a few days. And my mom bought girdles to put around me so that, you know, nobody could tell that I was pregnant when I got back home. And I went back home and yes, I did my very best to try to pretend like everything was normal. And a couple months later, my mom took me to a restaurant um, and sat down and told me that the home that I had picked for my daughter, that the parents had changed their minds. And all this time I thought she was with them and I found out that she in fact left the hospital to go to foster home because that was the the way they did it then, that the baby doesn't go directly into the foster home. I don't know what it has to do with paperwork or whatever. So she left, or I'm also not clear if maybe there wasn't actually a family. You know, I don't know that information, but ultimately my daughter was a few months old and had been raised by strangers who were never going to keep her. Meanwhile, I'm living in this three-story you know, home with this family and my daughter's in foster care. So my mom told me that the parents changed their mind and that they had another set of parents and I had to sign some paperwork to agree that this next set of parents could have her instead. And I remember looking at my mom and I remember saying, can we just go get her? Please, can we just go get her? And my mom said nothing. She just shook her head. And I didn't say anything else. And I, you know, I kicked myself for a while after that because I thought, you know, when I was little, I would beg my mom if I wanted to go stay at a friend's house, mom, please, please, please. And I learned how to say, you know, please, 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 until sometimes she'd give in. And I, I kind of, I kind of kicked myself because I feel like I didn't fight hard enough. I said it. But I know that that there was so much shame in that. It was hard for me to even ask her, please. And, you know, when she denied me, I guess there just wasn't enough fight in me to try to push more. Do you think it would have made any difference? I don't know. I doubt it. Time marches inexorably forward. Zoe goes to college and eventually marries a man 20 years her senior. Her daddy lust, the kind women so often feel when their own fathers have been withholding, dictating her choices. She does tell her husband about her secret history, but his response isn't exactly freeing. He basically just wants to pretend that it never happened. Sound familiar? 
Now, as a therapist, Zoe understands so much more about the choices we make that tend to underscore the feelings we already have about ourselves. In this case, his reaction just deepens the red in her scarlet letter. They move forward, leaving the past in the past, and start their family life, having two sons and then a daughter. And of course, you know, after giving up my daughter, there's always a part of me that wanted to have a daughter um, of my own that I could keep. And so we were also very excited. I feel like both my mom and I and everyone in the family, this was going to be the only daughter because my brother had three sons and I had had two sons. And I think there was a sense of exoneration when we found out I was having a girl. But unfortunately, when my daughter was born, we didn't know at the time, but she was born with a severe genetic disorder called Prader-Willi syndrome. And she was in the NICU and barely surviving for many weeks. And I felt this crushing sense of, I am being punished and now my daughter is being punished. Of course, God wouldn't give me a healthy baby girl. Of course, it's kind of a trick. And I sat with that for many years. And so, yes, then, you know, I, I dove into being a mom of a special needs child and trying to grapple with that and all of my shame and my guilt surrounding that for a number of years. Here Zoe is again, faced with intense shame and the sense that she's being punished, as well as a profound loneliness, the isolation that comes from raising a child with special needs. Add to this the heavy guilt she still carries from her secret child, the healthy daughter she'd given birth to years ago. All moms, you know, we have our own guilt about all things with our parenting. If I had not eaten this, if I had done this differently, if, you know, if, 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 with any issues that our kids might have. But, and special needs moms, I think, have another layer of that. And then I additionally had another layer on top of that. That wasn't healthy for me, and it certainly wasn't healthy, I think, for, for my daughter for a n- number of years because I just parented her with just so much guilt. But yeah, the, those layers were definitely there. And they were in silence because none of my friends knew. Um, my very best friend, she and I went through both of our early pregnancies together, and she thought that we both went through our very first pregnancy together. So yes, nobody knew. And so a lot of that was very much kept in secret. But Zoe manages. She's strong, stronger than her secrets. She builds her very busy family life and is thriving in her career as a psychotherapist as well. And one day, well, one day, her birth daughter finds her and reaches out. Her name is Sarah. She found me through Facebook. (laughs) Um, She actually found her father first because I was private on Facebook. I don't remember how she found out his name because it was a closed adoption. There were letters that went back and forth for the first year or two, and identifying information was blacked out, but sometimes they weren't that great about blacking out some of the things. I mean, someone in the agency would just go through with a marker and just black things out and then they'd send it off, you know? Um, So maybe that's how. She was doing some detective work, clearly. Correct, yes. And she found him. And I was homeschooling my kids in the middle of a normal homeschool day, and I get a call from Vinny, who I rarely ever heard from. Um, And he said, I have our daughter on the line. And I remember I just, just my feet just left from under me. And before I knew it, I was just plopped straight down on the ground. 
Um, and I heard her voice and she said, hi, <laughs> as simple as that, 18 years later, you know? And so we started a conversation and I remember I went into my closet and I shut the door and I sank down on the closet floor and I was talking to her in whispers because remember nobody, my kids don't know um, that they have a sibling out there. Um, but Sarah and I began to get to know each other and eventually we met for the first time. I told my husband and he was, you know, not very interested in any of it and certainly didn't want us to tell the, the kids. Um, so we told the kids that I was going on a business trip and I went on my quote business trip and met my daughter for the first time. What was it like to meet her? Oh, you know, I was at the airport and I was downstairs and she was coming from upstairs. I was waiting for her and I was looking at the, the escalator kind of waiting and it almost felt, it's kind of crazy, but it almost felt like she was descending from heaven. I could see her just coming slowly down on the escalator. It was just, I can only say maybe it was like coming home. I saw parts of her and parts of, of Vinny and the interesting thing though, is that I was so shut down. I think from so many years that I wasn't able to emote. I wasn't able to cry. I saw her and we hugged and I smiled and she was crying. And I just felt this dam, like this wall. And I remember feeling, Zoe, why can't you cry? Why can't you feel anything? Um, and I, I, I mean, I know now and I understand, you know, the process, but um, in that moment, I couldn't. Later when we were talking in the restaurant, I, you know, as we began to talk about things, I was able to kind of attach to some emotion. But in that moment, I just felt so closed up. Well, it's it's understandable because you, you had been taught that again and again and again. Right. Like the only way to survive is to close it off and shut it down. Exactly. Zoe tells her mother that Sarah has found her. She lets her know she plans to meet her birth daughter. She isn't exactly asking for permission. But Zoe and her mother seem to reach a tacit agreement that the secret needs to remain secret, that Zoe won't tell her kids. Later, Sarah also reaches out to Zoe's parents. They are her grandparents, after all. And they begin to develop a relationship of sorts. Not exactly like family. More like family-adjacent. How did they receive her? My parents are very polite. <laughs> I don't know that I'd say they were overly welcoming, but there wasn't any negativity. There wasn't, I don't think that there was any desire to push her away. My parents are very well-mannered, polite people. And so they met her and they welcomed her. When I say welcome, I don't really like that word because they didn't welcome her into our family. They weren't going to tell anybody about her, but they were willing to meet her. So they still intended to absolutely keep this a secret? Yes. For a few years, Zoe continues to get to know Sarah, meeting her clandestinely, sneaking away, telling her kids she's going to visit a friend. But then, Zoe's father dies, suddenly, of a heart attack. And now, as happens with secrets, another layer emerges. Because Sarah is going to go to her grandfather's funeral. Of course she is. She's now 21 years old. And there's a very good chance that Zoe's children will cross paths with her. You know, in the midst of my dad dying so suddenly and me, you know, 
needing to fly to the East Coast. And, you know, my husband didn't want me to bring the kids because one of the first things he said was, is Sarah going to be there? So, you know, I called Sarah and let her know that my father had passed. And of course, she expected to be at the funeral. You know, my mother was in shock. Um, she was not obviously in a good place at all. And I get home to Maryland and it's the day before the funeral and my mind is racing. <laughs> and I remember saying to my mom, I'm going to tell my children about Sarah. And my mother, she looked at me, but she didn't look at me. She looked through me. And I remember her eyes were just dead. And she just turned around and walked upstairs. And I remember that's the first time I felt, I felt like a child because I felt like I was making this decision all by myself. And it was the first decision and opposition that I was making all by myself. And I did, I gathered my kids up and I brought them upstairs and I told them, I have something to tell you. You have an older sister. <laughs> remember those words, you know, you have an older sister. They're five simple words. And they escaped my lips. And I remember just feeling like I wanted to grab them and pull them back. And I watched, you know, the effect of them on my kids. And, you know, initially they were just like, what? And they were excited. And they asked me tons and tons of questions. Over time, I saw a dawning in my 13-year-old's eyes that was like, oh, my mother's lied to me. But that took some time and that took some working through with him. So I told them. And I remember feeling like on some level, like this weight has been lifted off and I am becoming an adult for the very first time. I knew my husband would be horribly upset and I chose not to ask him before. I told him afterwards and that started a whole nother cascade of, of, of problems in our marriage. Um, but I felt so reborn. And then the next day I had to tell my family. So we had the actual funeral at the church. So we showed up at the church and Sarah was there and um, she sat in front of us with my kids. And for the first time I had all of my children, all five of them with me sitting there at my dad's funeral. Nobody knew who she was. I didn't introduce her to anyone. There was just a lot of, you know, just a lot of sadness and, and, and all the things that happen at a funeral. Well, after the funeral, we went to my sister's home. And that's where our family was. So my extended family, my aunts and uncles, my, you know, everybody. And Sarah came and I took a deep breath. And in the middle of everybody standing there in the living room, I said, I have somebody I want to introduce you to. My mother just kind of snuck away. And I told them, you know, this is my daughter, Sarah. I gave birth to her when I was 16 years old and I placed her for adoption and I want you guys to meet her. <sighs> Even as I say it, it just makes me feel kind of breathy because it was such a huge monumental thing for me to do. And I know that my mother never would have done it. She would have been fine to just pretend like Sarah was a friend. And the very last thing I could or would do would be allow my daughter to participate in this secret. She knew she was a secret, but I wasn't going to ask her to participate in holding the secret. And somehow, for some reason, I don't know if it was a combination of my father dying or just the reality of what I was going to be continuing in my life and perpetrating with my children, 
if I didn't tell the truth and speak the truth. And so I did it. It's so powerful. In the period ongoing, you know, from then, you know, that, that sense of having put down a burden that maybe assumed a kind of greater and greater and greater weight because I think somehow secrets just get like heavier and denser. They do. They take more maintenance. Yeah. And they extend and, and create more yeah. need for more kinds of secrets. It's like, it's like cracks in the ice just getting, you know, going, mm-hmm. you know, sort of fanning outward. And um, I'm wondering how it's felt once you were able to put down that burden, both, you know, with your family, with your extended family, and most of all with yourself to have lived so long with something so profoundly secretive and, and not be doing that anymore. I know people have said this before, and in some ways it's so cliche, but you don't really understand the weight of the burden until the burden's taken off. It's two things that happen. I think it's like those five words, I felt, you know, my whole life since I was 15 years old, if I had spoken those words that somehow the world was going to fall apart, that everything would, you know, would be destroyed, that I destroy people, I destroy my family, that all these horrible things would happen. And that I said those five things and nothing happened. And so part of it was like a realization that I was holding the secret unnecessarily. I was holding the secret in an attempt to honor my parents, an attempt to honor my husband. And it was all for nothing. And the secret in and of itself had created damage. And so I think that in addition to the beautiful weight being lifted, it was that realization that ultimately nobody cares. You know, people, you know, we hold these secrets for, for years and years and, and we, we build them up to be something so much more than they are. And yeah, people hear them and they might go, oh, wow, and maybe they'll murmur for a few minutes. But I've been holding that secret for decades and someone's going to talk about me for a minute. And so I think it was that realization of the futility of, of keeping it. And yet I had done it for so many years. And that just became, I think, a driving passion for me to just continue <laughs> in my authenticity, continue on this path and and help other women as well. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Molly Zakur is the story editor and Dylan Fagan is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, please leave us a voicemail and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's the number zero. You can also find me on Instagram at Danny Writer. And if you'd like to know more about the story that inspired this podcast, check out my memoir, Inheritance.
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com.